Before we begin our lesson today, this is the day that officially we are uh, appointing Tommy Leslie as a deacon. And I would ask Tommy to stand, but he's already stood. Uh, he already stood here, and uh, I think you all know him, except for those who are visiting with us. But we appreciate Tommy very much and his family. I have known the, this family for many, many years, going all the way back to Memphis School of Preaching days and, uh, and uh, well, the 90s, I guess. I started to say the 70s, but that's when I was a student. <laughs> I knew Tommy when I was privileged to teach there, and uh, you could not have asked for a finer student with a finer attitude, and uh, that is still the case today because it's my privilege to uh, work with Tommy pretty much on a daily basis here uh, as he uh, works with our personal work program, fills in preaching, does so many things, and does it so cooperatively, so uh, willingly, and uh, so effectively. And so we're delighted to uh, add him to our group of deacons who serve the congregation very well here, and we're blessed to have, uh, uh, have good men in, uh, in that uh, role, in that work as deacons, as uh, special servants, working under the oversight of the elders, and laboring for the Lord. And so we are delighted that, uh, that Tommy is now among uh, that uh, number. And uh, I know that you share uh, what the elders uh, feel along those lines. So we, um, uh, Tommy's already doing so much work, but uh, he'll do it now in the official capacity as a deacon. And uh, we may even add a little something to him. But uh, uh, if we do, uh, he will, uh, he'll accept it graciously and uh, do it wholeheartedly. We know that that is the case. We appreciate Tommy so very, very much. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. All need it. Most want it. Many seek it. Few find it. Fewer share it. None deserves it. The only way to keep it is to give it away. That's the opening line of a very fine manuscript in the Memphis School of Preaching Lectureship book by Brother Scott Kane, who preaches for the DeGaulle Drive Church in New Orleans, Louisiana, along with Wes Arby, who is a former student of mine as well and who works as an elder, labors as one of the overseers there. And that is an excellent statement. It's the beginning of an excellent lesson from which I have drawn so much of the thoughts that I will present today because we're in a series based upon the lectureship theme of the Memphis School of Preaching Lectureship, the New Testament Christian. And we have looked at uh, a few topics already. Lord willing, we'll look at several more. About 20 lessons altogether is the lesson plan. And this is one of the excellent lessons from that great lectureship that is held each year. And it's a great subject. I obviously could not deal with all the subject matter that was dealt with in the lectureship book, but I have chosen about 20 with which to deal, and I think this one is so vitally important because of the statement we have just uh, shared with you from Brother Cain. Forgiveness, all need it, most want it, many seek it, few find it, fewer share it, none deserves it. The only way to keep it is to give it away. Yes, God forgives. And aren't we thankful that God forgives? And he expects man to forgive others. 
In Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, as a part of the great Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ made that point abundantly clear, didn't he? For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see, one cannot be a New Testament Christian without practicing forgiveness. And that being said, let's ask this question. Is it always an easy thing to do? You know, if it were always easy, Peter would not have asked Jesus the following question. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? You know, Peter probably thought that was pretty generous. Uh, seven times? If I forgive my brother seven times? Well, no, you know the Lord said 70 times seven, meaning no limit to that forgiveness. But one of the major hindrances to forgiveness is something called the grudge. The grudge. And thus, the title of our lesson is, The New Testament Christian Forgives Without Grudging. Without Grudging. You see, forgiveness and holding a grudge are mutually exclusive. They cannot be in harmony. If a person claims to have forgiven while holding a grudge, has that person really extended forgiveness? The answer is no. And so that leads us to the two questions upon which this lesson will center. One, what is forgiveness? And two, why should we forgive? What is forgiveness? Well, if you examine the words in the New Testament that are given for forgive or forgiveness, you come away with, with a summary definition like this. This is from Brother Cain's lesson. Forgiveness, quote, forgiveness is a release of resentment with a gracious granting of full freedom from fault, a dismissal of debt, and a pardon from penalty. Listen to that again. Forgiveness is a release of resentment with a gracious granting of full freedom from fault, a dismissal of debt, and a pardon from penalty. Forgiveness requires letting go. It's a release. But a grudge is the exact opposite. And when you look at the biblical terms for grudging that involve grudging, they embrace negative uh, emotions. That's what grudging embraces. Grudging embraces negative emotions with a grumbling obstinacy that makes life more difficult for others. Again, to quote Brother Cain, grudging holds to anger, forgiveness lets go. Grudging stays put, forgiveness moves forward. Grudging resents, forgiveness relieves. Grudging incarcerates, forgiveness exonerates. And even the secular sources point out a clear contrast between forgiveness and grudging. Webster, on the word forgive, to give up resentment or claim to, on account of an offense or wrong, to remit the penalty of, to pardon or to cease to feel resentment against or on account of wrong committed. And then Webster on the word grudge, a deep-seated resentment or rancor. So by definition, one has not forgiven another 
if he still holds a grudge. You can't do that. And who is it that provides us with a perfect picture of pardon? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? As he was suspended between heaven and earth on Calvary, having been spat upon, shamed, scorned, scourged, and stripped, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, some claim that Jesus was praying for pardon there without penitence on the part of his executioners. Just forgive them, Father, period. No, that's not true. Don't you remember that Christ had the power on earth to forgive sins and he demonstrated that power on earth to forgive sins and stated that he had that power? Mark 2, verse 10, for example. So if his intention on Calvary was to forgive his executioners, why not just forgive them himself? Why pray to the Father to forgive? Christ was still on earth. He was still alive. He had the power to forgive sins on earth. If that was his intention, why didn't he just forgive them himself? No. The souls for whom Christ prayed at Calvary were obviously not forgiven because 50 days later Peter told them how to receive the forgiveness of their sins, didn't they? In Acts chapter 2, when the gospel was preached for the first time, and near the culmination of that sermon, a part of which is recorded, the sermon by Peter, verse 36, Peter said to them, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter told them how to be forgiven. If Jesus intended in his prayer on the cross to forgive the impenitent, why were they not forgiven? Well, that leads us to ask, then, what purpose did his prayer on Calvary serve? What was the purpose of that prayer? It demonstrated a readiness to forgive, an eagerness to forgive, that provides an example to all who would claim to follow Jesus. We must also have that eagerness to forgive, that readiness to forgive. I quote Brother Scott Kane again as he so ably states in his excellent lesson on this subject, quote, the readiness to forgive begins when the transgression is realized, not when repentance is made. Notice that. The readiness to forgive begins when? When the transgression, the sin is realized, not when repentance is made. I've got to be ready to forgive before repentance ever comes. I'm ready to forgive. He goes on, a readiness to forgive does not entertain evil thoughts and emotions toward those who are not yet forgiven, nor does it seek vengeance. The soul ready to forgive harbors no grudge because it waits for an opportunity to bury the trespass and move forward. I love that statement. The soul ready to forgive harbors no grudge. Why? Because it waits. It waits for an opportunity to bury the trespass and move forward. There's an eagerness there to forgive if we're thinking as we should. 
And that leads to the final part of this lesson. Why should the New Testament Christian forgive without grudging? Why should he forgive without grudging? Well, Jesus supplies the answer in Matthew chapter 18, especially in that part of the chapter in which he gives the parable of the unforgiving servant, as we call it. Beginning in verse 23, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Here's the application, verse 35, so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. A New Testament Christian forgives without grudging. And the reasons are seen in the passage I just read. First of all, a New Testament Christian forgives without grudging because he has received forgiveness. Think back there to Matthew 18 again, this time back at verses 32 and 33, remember? Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? The New Testament Christian forgives without grudging because... He has received forgiveness. There's no question that Christians have an obligation to forgive. Being forgiven requires us to, to be forgiving. But Christian forgiveness should not be motivated primarily by compulsion, but by compassion. Oh yes, we have to forgive. We're commanded to forgive, but... Do we really forgive primarily by compulsion or is it by compassion? The king in this parable forgave because he was moved with compassion. Go back to verse 27. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Now whom does the king in this parable represent? Represents the father in heaven showing us very clearly that God the Father forgives out of compassion. And we must follow that example. 
Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 4, verse 32. And be kind, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. You've been forgiven, now you forgive. The greatest kindness possibly imagined has been shown to you. Are you going to be kind to your brothers and sisters? Are you going to look for the opportunity to forgive if forgiveness becomes necessary because sin has reared its head in a brother or a sister? How will you respond? And for that matter, how do you respond to your brothers and sisters whether they've sinned or not? The admonition here is be kind to one another. Part of the kindness is to forgive them when they repent and they're wrong. But kindness is something that permeates the Christian life. And it's a characteristic of Christianity. We have to watch our actions and our tongues. And later on in this series, one of those uh, lessons is going to be the New Testament Christian guards his tongue. And that's the point. You've got to keep guard on it, don't you? We all do. Kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. How? Paul, just as God in Christ forgave you. And notice again the same apostle's admonition in Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Here he says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, here it is again, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, there it is again, the New Testament Christian forgives because he's been forgiven. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And again, Scott Cain in his excellent lesson on this subject wrote this. Quote, true forgiveness is more than an effort to avoid punishment. It is a matter of the heart. Too many brethren miss the foregoing truth. They forgive solely because they fear a penalty, not because they feel any pity. Is it penalty or pity? He goes on, such souls may truly forgive without a grudge, but there is room for growth. Sadly, some never advance beyond the point of fear-driven forgiveness. Mercy does not move them. Compassion does not compel them. Could it be that they have a heart problem? Christians forgive because God forgives and in the way God forgives. End of quote. Now notice two Old Testament passages that illustrate how God forgives. Listen to this, Isaiah 38, 17. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. I like that expression. You have cast all my sins behind your back. Here's another figure from Micah. Chapter 7, verse 19. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. So what's God doing with our sins when we truly meet His conditions for forgiveness? They're cast behind His back. They're cast into the depth of the sea. And then, of course, there is the most reassuring promise in Hebrews eight twelve. 
in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Behind the back, in the depth of the sea, remember no more. William Arthur Ward wrote, quote, We are most like beasts when we kill. We are most like men when we judge. We are most like God when we forgive, end quote. But secondly, a New Testament Christian forgives without grudging because he's been requested to forgive. He forgives because he's received forgiveness. He secondly forgives because he's been requested to forgive. Now notice again the parable. The reason given for forgiveness in the Lord's parable in Matthew 18, verse 32, Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt, listen to it, because you begged me. You asked me. You begged me. The Bible teaches that God, please notice this, appreciate it fully, God does not forgive without repentance. God does not forgive without repentance. Is God ready to forgive? Yes, we've already talked about the readiness that God has to forgive, he's eager to forgive, he desires to forgive, and we must emulate that readiness to forgive. We're eager to forgive. We're looking for the opportunity to forgive. Does God, despite his readiness to forgive, forgive without repentance on the part of the sinner? No. He does not. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all in like manner perished, the Lord said in Luke 13, 3, and he repeated those same words two verses later in verse 5. God's servants are to forgive as God forgives. Notice it. God's servants are to forgive as God forgives. And God does not forgive without repentance. Therefore, repentance is required before forgiveness can be granted. Now, Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, settles the matter if it needed settling further. Take heed to yourselves, Jesus said. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. But what is it that permeates that statement? Repentance, if he repents. The passage requires, first of all, rebuke of the sinner. If your brother sins against you, what? Rebuke him. That's step number one. Repentance from the sinner is step number two. And the conclusion is reconciliation. There has to be a rebuke of sin. We cannot overlook sin. Individuals are not to overlook sin. Congregations are not to overlook sin. And therefore, they are to rebuke sin. They're to do it, obviously, in a Christian spirit, loving. Because they love, they rebuke. The sinner then must repent, and when the sinner repents, there can be reconciliation or forgiveness of the sin. In Matthew 18, the same chapter from which we have looked at the parable of the unforgiving servant, Matthew 18, 15 through 17 gives us more details on the process. 
Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now wait right there. Stop. If your brother what? Sins against you. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. What if he hasn't sinned, but he may have upset you in some way uh, and didn't even intend to? You can't rebuke him for sin. In fact, in, in most cases, when you feel you've been slighted, perhaps, give the brother or sister benefit of the doubt and get over it and move on and move on. But if you feel like something there needs to be discussed, and you do discuss it, but in the discussion you reach a determination there's really no sin involved here, then you do move on, and you both move on. But when sin is involved, you go to him and rebuke him. And if he hears you, Jesus says, you've gained your brother. And incidentally, that doesn't mean that even when sin is not involved, don't misunderstand me on this, that we can't express concern and have questions that we need answers for. That's fine. But do that, do that in the right way. And then uh, be accepting if there's a logical and uh, plausible answer from the brother or sister. But where sin is involved, you can't just move on, can you? can't move on where sin is involved. If he hears you, you can move on. If he hears you, that is, hearing you in this statement indicates he or she responds to the rebuke and says, yes, you're right, I have sinned, please forgive me. Leave it right there if it's between the two of you. And reconcile and move on. Beautiful thing. But if sin is involved and you know there's sin involved and you approach the brother or sister and the brother or sister will not hear you, you haven't gained your brother, as Jesus says here. If he will not hear, then what? Forget it. Move on anyway. No. Take with you two, one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, withdraw fellowship from the brother or sister. When? As soon as the sin is known. Of course not. After a long and loving process, a reasonable and loving process. But if there's no response, no repentance, you have to do what God has told us to do. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 rebuked the Corinthians for their failure to do what? To rebuke the brother who was living in sin with his father's wife. And you know, they were actually puffed up about it. They had an arrogance about it as though, as though they were saying, see how tolerant we are? Oh, and that's the, that's the buzzword today, tolerance. And they, they were in effect, the Corinthian church was in effect saying, see how tolerant we are? We're so tolerant and loving, we can even fellowship a man who's living with his stepmother. In sin is the indication here. We can, even, we can even extend fellowship to this man. Look how tolerant we are. And again, Brother Cain in his excellent lesson says, quote, many who teach forgiveness regardless of repentance claim it is arrogant audacity for Christians to withhold forgiveness from the impenitent, but according to the apostle, it is actually an act of arrogance to extend forgiveness to the impenitent. That's exactly right. They were arrogant in their failure to extend 
uh, rebuke in their failure to rebuke and to supposedly extend forgiveness whether there was repentance or not. Well, thankfully, thankfully they listened to Paul. And the church at Corinth responded favorably to Paul's admonition. They disciplined the offender, and guess what? They brought him to repentance. Let me ask you, do you think if they had continued to be so tolerant of him and accepting of him and puffed up and proud about how tolerant they were of him that he would have ever repented? There would have been no need to repent on his part, no incentive for repentance. It was only when they listened to an inspired apostle and withdrew their fellowship from him that he came to his senses spiritually and came home and gave up his sin. And so Paul then wrote in the second epistle to them, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. That tells us that when repentance is forthcoming and we are to forgive and we do forgive, we do not burden that sinner who has repented with a sense of guilt that he should not have. Does that mean that you, uh, if a child molester repents of child molesting, turns away from that and truly repents, that you make him the youth director? Well, of course not. We need to help those who've repented of, of certain sins to stay away from temptation. We don't need to put them in, 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 uh, in positions where they'll be more tempted. But we forgive without grudging. And then, finally, the New Testament Christian forgives because he rejoices in forgiveness. And that goes back to an earlier statement in Matthew 18, verses 12 and 13. What do you think? Jesus asked, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, Assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Over the 99 that did not go astray. When a lost soul repents and returns, there is joy where? In heaven. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Similar statement to the one we just read. That's from Luke 15, 7. When a lost soul repents and returns, there's joy in the presence of God's angels. Luke 15, 10. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And there is joy when a lost soul repents, also in the hearts of God's servants, in brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's Luke 15, 22 through 24. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. That's the prodigal son's return, isn't it? And put, on, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. There's joy over the return of one lost soul among the servants of God, truly from the heart. Again, a statement from Brother Cain on this aspect of our study. 
He writes, joy is the ultimate reason why Christians do not harbor grudges. Christians remember the disappointment of learning of a Christian brother's sin. They remember the anxiety of approaching him about his sin. They remember the pitiful heartbreak of seeing a brother face godly sorrow. Then comes repentance. Then comes remission. Then comes rejoicing. Like the noonday sun shining through the storm clouds, the joy of reconciliation shines brightest when Christians remember the dreariness of disappointment, anxiety, and heartbreak. And then he says, joy is why Christians cannot forgive in the absence of repentance, because without repentance, there can be no joy. Why is extending forgiveness so difficult for many? It's difficult when forgiven souls forget the mercy and love that God has extended to them in forgiving them. It's difficult to practice when souls seek retribution over reconciliation. Unless God forgives us, we remain in sin. Unless we forgive others who meet God's requirements for forgiveness, God does not forgive us. Forgiveness may be difficult, but should it be? I can assure you that God will have no difficulty forgiving you today, none whatsoever, if you come to Him in humble obedience to obey the gospel by believing that Jesus is the Christ, by repenting of your sins, by confessing Jesus to be the Christ, and by being buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. God will have no difficulty forgiving you if you will meet those requirements that He, through His Son, has set forth in the New Testament. He'll have no difficulty forgiving the wayward child of God who has once known the joy of salvation but has wandered from the fold and like that lost sheep needs to come home and they'll be rejoicing in heaven. If that's your need and if you'll respond and take care of that need this morning, God will have no difficulty because God is ready to forgive. And we must be as well. Will you come as we stand and sing?